Affordable housing is a basic human right, and to build a better Kentucky where all our people can thrive, safe and reliable housing is absolutely essential. I wanted to be better and meet those goals, and it wouldn't have been possible without Kentucky housing. Knowing that I had a roof over my head, um, food to eat, knowing that I didn't have to want for anything, um, that's a that's a big plus. Being a single parent and not having to worry about um, you know housing, uh, paying bills while you know being in school. But I am here to tell you that there is a lot of beauty in this part of the county. Bringing it home with KHC. Hello, hello. Welcome to Bringing It Home with KHC, a podcast focused on the housing issues and trends facing Kentucky. Several years ago, KHC offered the Strategic Housing Podcast focused on national housing issues. But now we are bringing it home and focusing on the needs of the Commonwealth. I am Nicaea Patterson, your host, and every month we will highlight a different aspect of affordable housing and speak to the experts in the field. My colleagues, Steve Morrow, Nathan Hall, and Molly Tate will join us periodically to lead the discussion. We are kicking it off with an episode focused on the state of affordable housing today. Last year, KHC celebrated its 50th anniversary serving the Commonwealth. Since our founder, Representative May Street Kid sponsored the legislation to create Kentucky housing, a lot has changed. We survived economic swings, pandemics, natural disasters, and we've even added programs and broadened our focus. Today, we have Patrick Bowen and Brent Childers joining our moderator, Steve Morrow, to speak about the state of affordable housing nationally and locally. So we're joined today by, by Brent Childers, the Director of Neighborhood and Community Services in Bowling Green, Kentucky, uh, and Patrick Bowen, the President of Bowen National Research. So first of all, thank you for joining us on this first episode of Bringing It Home with KHC. Um, I think we want to start out by, um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you both do. Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, yeah, and thank you for having me here. Uh, it's Patrick Bowen, again, president of Bowen National Research. We are an Ohio-based real estate research firm, but as our company name uh, implies, we are a national firm. We do work in all 50 states, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands. Most of the work that we do is for uh, individual developers who are seeking financing for uh, projects in Kentucky, but elsewhere. And the other uh, track of work that we do are broader housing needs assessments of communities. And that's how I met uh, Brent uh, years ago in Bowling Green, where we studied Bowling Green area, but we've studied other parts of Kentucky and other markets uh, around the United States. So real estate market analysis, research, consulting, that's what we do. So I'm uh, Brent Childers, Director of Neighborhood and Community Services. With the city of Bowling Green, I've been in this position about 12 years. Uh, and as NCS director, I'd like to say we're the everything else of city government. Uh, so we're uh, the things that don't fall into a police, fire, public works, or parks all fall into NCS. So uh, I get to oversee building electrical inspections, property maintenance, animal control, uh, Section 8 housing, international liaison, citizen complaints, neighborhood organizing. Uh, and also all of our federal grants. Uh, so a lot of my work has been in community development. Uh, so housing is, is obviously a part of that, uh, but also do a lot of neighborhood development through parks and sidewalks and, and road work, uh, just things to make Bowling Green a better place to live. So I get a lot of uh, freedom to go out and create and, and 
develop things to make Bowling Green the best place to live. And it's a, it's a pretty cool opportunity. You both kind of talked about overlapping on affordable housing, and we kind of want to jump into that. Um, since this episode in particular is about the state of affordable housing uh, in Kentucky, um, we want to kind of start out there and say, in your words, what is uh, affordable housing? Affordable housing. I guess it's, you know, just generally, it's up to the community to decide what they might define that as. But broadly speaking, affordable housing uh, is any housing that uh, meets the needs of lower income households. And depending on you know, the financing that might be behind the project, or Brent had mentioned uh, grant writing and some of the things that they, they do, um, it might mean those that make up to 50% of area median income, which ties to government subsidized programs. Or it might go up to 80% of median income, which is a low-income tax credit program. So I suspect today um, some of our conversation will really focus in on that. Um, I will say this. There are some communities that still consider affordable housing. Those that make over 80% of median income might go up to 120%. Now, the nomenclature on that kind of uh, varies from community to community, but a lot of folks will call that affordable workforce housing. So I know there are communities that, again, are trying to find that almost missing middle um, because again, the tax credit program is out there to accommodate those that make up to 80. Government subsidized meets the needs of those, or at least tries to meet the needs of those that make 50% or up to 50% of median. And so there's that segment out there that I think a lot of communities are starting to look at. And again, it's at 81 to about 120% of median, and that might be affordable workforce housing. So that's the world that we're in. And that's what our company, even though our company does focus on a lot of different types of housing, um, we are experts in affordable, and that would be my general definition of what uh, what we consider affordable housing. And obviously, you have you know HUD definitions, you have uh, lending definitions of what's affordable, and all those things. But I've also found that affordable housing uh, is self-interpreted, uh, so people define that how they want it to be in in the real world, in the community world. Uh, but Pat's right. I mean, I think a lot of communities are looking for that, uh, what we just call workforce housing. You know, where is um, the somebody working at the at the plant uh, going to be able to afford the house? Uh, you know, that isn't the the plant manager. You know, that that true line level housing impact. And I think you see this really big in the major market areas where. Uh, things are, you know, where they, where the police officer is going to live, where the teacher is going to live, where the firefighters, where's the janitor going to live? You know, all these demands of occupation, uh, and where do they have to, where can they afford to live to service in that area? Uh, I, I remember years ago, uh, I was probably 10 or 11 years old, and I had a uncle who had a contract with EA Sports packaging video games. And uh, he had a packaging company or had, or had a packaging company. And I was like, oh, so did you get to go out there to Silicon Valley with her? Hey, he goes, yeah. And I was like, well, what was that like? He was like, you know, it's a really cool place. He said, but they got their own problems. I was like, what could be the problem? Everybody out there is tech and wealthy. And he goes, there's nowhere for the police officers to live or the trash men or the firefighters or the teachers. Like, nobody can afford to live there. So they have to import it. And I was like, you know, at 12 years old, this concept of your workforce not being able to live in your community was like introduced to me at, at, at a video game level, really. And uh, it was just like, oh, never would have thought about that as a 12-year-old kid. So, uh, I mean, that's where we struggle, too. Uh, you know, we've been able to grow our subsidized housing vouchers. We've been able to see new tax credit properties come in. But it's really that next gap 
uh, and a lot of it is the price of housing is outpacing uh, one's ability to grow their income. I mean, that's look at those two charts, and they just don't line up. And that's that's a systemic problem across many communities. Yeah, and and in Bowling Green, you're so you would characterize the the sort of situation in the workforce um, housing. Is that what you're calling it? Workforce. How would you characterize that situation? And is it is it uh, is it going well? No, not really. Uh, I think we're following the curve of everybody else. Um, so we thought uh, COVID was going to impact housing more negatively, uh, and it. And when it's all perspective, housing prices more negatively. I was expecting uh, one of the things I was worried about whenever COVID hit and all the shutdown started is what am I going to do with all these building inspectors? Uh, because if people aren't building houses, I've got all these, these inspectors with no projects to inspect. And the exact opposite happened. Building went through the roof. Uh, 2021, fiscal year 2021, was a record single family construction year for us. Uh, outpaced prior years and outpaced even last year. Uh, and so it just took off in this other direction. And then with that, I think we all saw the pricing of new single family just through the roof. I mean, I think we all heard stories of friends and family and coworkers uh, trying to buy a house and, you know, it was listed at, say, 210, but it sells for 235 or listed at 410 and sells for 475. You know, it doesn't matter. It's like every market was just outpriced so quickly. Uh, and so, you know, Bowling Green was no different than that. The other side of Bowling Green is our economic growth has been uh, really strong for the last several years. I mean, uh, many people that are listening to this know that we've uh, cited a new battery plant with 2,000 jobs that they're starting construction on. So those, you know, we're going to need more people coming into the market to supply those jobs. But that's the big announcement. We've got probably another three or four announcements that have been made that equal another thousand jobs. So in the last couple of years, Bowling Green's been able to land 3,000 new jobs, direct jobs, which then correlate to other jobs. Uh, so as the, the local community grows, the demand for every other service grows as well. And so you have this uh, you know, growth curve that just pushes on housing even more. Um, and so Recently, with the interest rate increase, we've seen a, a sharp slowdown in new single family. Uh, our permitting has really been cut in half on a month to month. That's short term, so it's hard to see what that's going to look like long term. But uh, we think that that's tied directly to interest rates. Because uh, we even saw, we didn't see the slowdown even with the increase in prices. We didn't see the slowdown with material shortages. Uh, but now we're starting to see a slowdown on new single family, but multifamily isn't isn't slowing down here locally. Uh, so we're seeing that even outpace. And Brent, let me piggyback off of that. I mean, just nationally, I was looking up numbers uh, last week, and uh, residential building permit activity in the United States, I think in September, was its lowest point in the past year. And so you are seeing the impact of uh, interest rates, uh, specifically tying to uh, residential development. But meanwhile, you're correct. I mean, home prices are still going up. Now, they're not at the level they were. I think nationally, uh, home prices were up about 7% uh, in September uh, over the preceding September. Um, but back in the spring, uh, it was you know, 14, 15, 16%. So it's slowing down. The rate of increase is slowing down in terms of home prices, but it's still positive. And same thing for rentals. You know, part of this, obviously, this, this uh, podcast is to talk about rental housing. I mean, the same thing is happening where nationally you saw rental increases 
uh, around 13 to about 17% in the spring, uh, early summer. Now we're down to about 8% nationally, still increasing, still outpacing uh, many household incomes. So the challenge is still there for uh, particularly lower income households to be able to afford, whether it's to buy or to, to rent. Uh, the challenges are still there, but it'll be interesting to see whether in the next few months, um, you know, do they continue to raise interest rates? What happens with inflation? What happens with development costs? I think those are the wild cards that everybody's kind of waiting to see where, where we go. Yeah, and all those things are well outside of any local market control. You know, those three big factors are on a national scale. So there's nothing that a Bowling Green, a Louisville, a Lexington, a, an Owensboro, or even a, uh, a Maysville uh, could do about something of, of those big issues. You just have to ride this wave uh, as best you can. And, and that's right. We're seeing the same thing on the rental prices. Uh, now, at first, it was because of the tornadoes. Uh, last winter uh, they really shot up and absorbed all of our existing vacancy in the market and so we thought that was it but we're still continuing to see those rents climb on a regular basis and and the struggle for the on the, on the lower income affordable housing side is there's not enough units at that lower level and we're even starting to see some of our what i'd call maybe class d apartments uh you know that low income targeted uh, maybe we had one a couple of years ago that got acquired by an outside firm uh, that came in, they reinvested in it, which was good. It was it needed a lot of reinvestment, uh, but it went from 450 a month to 650 a month. You know, they had to recoup that purchase price and that renovation cost. And that was our bottom tier uh, multifamily unit. And so that bottom tier went from 450 a month to 650 a month, really over the course of a year. And that was a, uh, that was like, so now the floor was reset for the entire community. And there's just not enough units out there at that lower tier price uh, to create. Uh, the demand is there, the supply is not there at all. And so they're there, but there's not a, there's more people that need them. So they never turn over, they never get vacant. And that's where the vouchers come in to make that up. Uh, one of the things we've started doing is we've started raising our uh, payment standard on our voucher program. Uh, we've raised it now. We're moving up to 110% of HUD fair market rents just to try to get more people. If we give them a voucher, we're seeing, we've seen way too many families get that voucher, which they have to wait, you know, months and months to get that voucher. Uh, but then their ability to take that out to the marketplace and find a unit, we were seeing those expire because they timed out. They've been out there too long. So we've raised our payment standard to as high as we can. Uh, just to try to open up another share of the market out there to, to to create that, we hope it's working in the right direction. We were we saw 36 vouchers get leased up uh, last month, which is probably twice what we typically see in a month. So we're hoping that that helps. Uh, but we're we're fortunate that the the funding side, because in the voucher management, you got to you got to manage the units, or the the vouchers, and the money. Uh, so we think that our money will be there to support it and maximizing all the dollars that come in from us. So th those are just subtle adjustments that we're making on the subsidized side, uh, trying to trying to tackle that. Because I'm glad Brent brought it up. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of housing challenges and issues and things we see across the country. But I believe you know, vouchers are one of those things people really need to have on their radar. So for those out there that are listening, uh, just to get a just a brief understanding of the housing voucher program. You know, the, the local housing authority, or in this case, Brent's organization, issues these, these vouchers. 
to eligible low-income households. They take these vouchers and they would use them at a, an apartment, a house, whoever would accept the voucher to help subsidize their rent. One of the things we're finding that's uh, been a, a uh, probably a unique post-COVID phenomenon has been the inability of voucher holders to use those vouchers. Um, Brent can probably speak to specific to Bowling Green, but I can tell you in a lot of communities that we uh, do these broader housing needs assessments, it is not uncommon for you know, hundreds or thousands in some cases of these vouchers to get issued and have as much as 20 to maybe even up to 40% of those vouchers, voucher holders cannot use their vouchers. And there's a lot of things that go into that. One is a property owner does not have to accept a voucher, right? There's a whole process and a program that you'd have to go through as a property owner. And so some properties uh, management or ownership does not wanna deal with that. And so I have a voucher, but I can't use it at this particular property. But the other thing is happening, and it's really been the, it ties back to what Brent was talking about, rent increases and, and I was uh, commenting about, is that rents are so high now in some markets that they exceed the payment standard. So Brent's on the right track in, in the sense that, you know, maybe a tactic for a community, and I don't know the process of, of raising the payment standard. I, I, my understanding is it's a difficult process, but I could be wrong. But nonetheless, you know, right now, the incentive for a, a property owner to accept a voucher is not there because as a property owner, if you're going to rent an apartment or a house, I know that I can make more on the private sector market and get somebody to pay a $1,500 rent for a two-bedroom than I could for what the payment standard and the tenant rent contribution is going to pay. So guess what? I'm not taking a voucher. I can make more money elsewhere. And so that's happening everywhere. The end result is you got voucher holders, a good program, and that's federal money that could be coming into communities because the federal government's going to you know, pay that portion of the tenant rent. That's not coming in because people cannot use vouchers. So that's a major uh, hurdle for the United States and, and all across Kentucky. And I'll give you some real-world examples of how we've seen that. Uh, one, um, when the market is strong, there's enough demand out there for the landlord to not want to fool with because they know that there's somebody that will come along that will pay $200 a month more than, than what the, the voucher is willing to pay. As the market softens, and as uh, you know, we hit this recession and wages drop and, and we see the, the loss of income and things like that, then our voucher starts to become more valuable to the landlord because of that consistent, you know, you know the check's gonna be good, right? It's coming from the government. Uh, so you don't have to worry, it's a direct deposit at the first of every month. Uh, so that the, you know, they start looking back at it. But whenever the market's strong and it's, it's a growth market out there in our community, then it is harder and harder. And so years ago, we would, um, you know, we gave somebody a voucher, they had 60 days to find a unit. And that was usually pretty good. Uh, they could find something out there. Um, so after the last couple of years, we just started extending more and more of those to 120 days. Now we just automatically, it's 120 days uh, because there was no reason to make the person request the extension because we knew they weren't going to find anything in the 60 days, that it was going to take them 120 days. And so that's when we started to see more and more of those vouchers not get used. So if let's say we need 10 in the old days, if we needed 10 vouchers used, we would award 20 knowing that we were going to get about 10. There was an attrition rate that we could kind of factor in there. Now, if we wanted 10, we have to issue 35 to 40 to hopefully get 10 actually used out on the street paying rent. 
and so that's the reality of managing that, uh, some of the challenges that we see. And that's where we're hoping that payment standard increase um, uh, will, will get us back to 20 to 10, 20 issued, 10 used uh, ratio. Because just because we give somebody a voucher doesn't mean we're helping. We're not solving any problems. We're not helping that family just because they got that voucher. We're only helping that family whenever they find a landlord that would accept that voucher, they sign a lease, and we start paying rent on their behalf. And now they're going from paying $850 a month that they can't afford to $200 a month uh, to to an affordable level. That's the only time we're helping somebody. Uh, And so it's about how do we maximize that? And we, we are diligent about trying to, if a dollar from the feds comes in, we're going to put that dollar out in the marketplace to help somebody. So we try to keep our utilization as close to 100% or over 100% uh, on the voucher side and on the money side uh, as close as we can uh, because we don't want a dollar coming into the community from the feds uh, that isn't going out to help somebody. If the if HUD is going to give us this resource to help our neighbors, then we're going to do everything we can to get it out there to help our neighbors. Well, I wonder, uh, Brent, how, how did the tornadoes affect that in the housing stock and then the, the voucher program or just the affordable housing situation around Warren County? Being really in charge of the recovery uh, and also the planning uh, of the recovery, I'm, I'm able to see really a, a good 50,000 foot view. So our department did damage assessment, so we knew what was damaged, what was lost. Uh, so I've got a whole database of all the properties that were impacted and was able to siphon that down. And really, we lost about 475 units. We, we next units. Uh, so that would be not houses, total units. So if it was an eightplex, that's eight units because that's eight families that have to go somewhere that, that are removed from the marketplace. Uh, and so what we also saw was 65% of those were of those impacted units were rental properties. Uh, our hardest impact area, our, our kind of ground zero, if you will, uh, was in this uh, one neighborhood and it had uh, a whole line of single family rental properties. Uh, there were two owners that owned 17 properties uh, in this stretch. 13 of them were completely lost of those of these two families. Uh, and then the next phase of that development was really a multifamily development area, and it was all eight plexes. And so it just came right through. And I won't say that these were our uh, affordable housing. These weren't our lowest rents. Uh, most of this area was really five to six years old, but it was targeted and built to that workforce housing group. Uh, you know, the much more moderate rent, moderate priced housing. Uh, high density uh, type of, of development, but it created an opportunity for, for those families. Uh, and that's where we lost 41% of our housing units was in that one area. Uh, so all told, 475, we had another 500 damaged, uh, but they weren't moderate or severe where we believe um, that people could uh, stay in those uh, past one So 475 where people couldn't live there until they were fixed. Now what we've seen, uh, and a couple of things we did, we have a lot of construction always going on. Uh, so we tend to build about a thousand units a year in this community between the city and the county, because uh, we grow at about 2,500 people a year. So we need to build about a thousand units a year. Um, and so that, so you're looking at, we now have to fix 
somewhere around one and a half years worth of housing stock, new housing stock, and on top of building this new housing stock. Uh, so that slowed us down because there's just not enough contractors, there's not enough plumbers, there's not enough electricians, the wood, the material supply. Uh, but we also saw those 475 families gobbled up any vacancy that was out there. And there wasn't 475 units to be gobbled up. Uh, there, there wasn't that much vacancy in the market. And that's where the temporary housing comes in. Uh, so they brought in some of the temporary trailers and things like that. Now, we were fortunate. We only ended up with about 30 trailers, uh, but we also worked very hard. Uh, we identified construction, pro uh, new multifamily projects that were close to completion. We identified those through our building office and then just started calling those builders, those developers. Like, okay, how close are you? How, what do we need to do to get you COs so you can move people in? Okay, you haven't paved the parking lot. That's fine. You can do that next week. But we need these units. You know, get your toilets in there. Get your smoke detector. Let's make them livable. And we were able to bring, I don't know, probably 80 online in just a couple of weeks. Just And then they were able to start poof. I mean, then they went from, uh, you know, 90% complete to 100% occupied in just a very short amount of time. But that what we were really trying to do was increase our supply because we had lost a, a portion of our supply. Now, where Bowling Green Warren County is, uh, I think, different from some of the other communities in West Kentucky about this, 475 units lost. We have, in Bowling Green, we have probably 30,000 housing units. So it's a small percentage overall of our housing market. You go to the Mayfield, to the Dawson Springs, they lost a much higher percentage of their overall housing market. They're, there was nowhere else for people to go. There was no other market to support that. And so the challenges that they have are, are much different than the challenges we have. Um, so I track our permitting. So far, we've permitted the reconstruction or rebuild or repair uh, of about 340 residential units. Uh, and not that permits are the best, because I promise you, after, after a disaster, a building permit is not people's first focus. Uh, so we've tried to catch as many as we can, but we know uh, through using some aerial imagery uh, post-tornado and going back and doing on-the-ground surveys, uh, look, driving through neighborhoods, that this house was damaged, this house is now repaired, and there was no permit uh, issued on that property. So it's not the best measure. It's just the best we have to work with. Um, and so it impacted. We saw rents really increased a couple hundred dollars instantly. I'll, I'll give you a, uh, we lost, we had 13 vouchers impacted because uh, that was one of, the, one of the things I had our housing division do is, okay, go through your list, see who's in the impacted areas, see how many vouchers we had impacted uh, and, you know, start verifying. We ended up with 13. So one of the families, uh, older couple, fixed income, they, uh, uh, the unit was damaged, uh, had a good landlord, had to move out, moved in with some family for a short term, moved, you know, probably six, eight months later, they're back in that unit. Uh, and rent went up $150 on the same, pretty much the same unit uh, because of the cost to the owner for rebuilding. So we just saw overall our rental prices increase uh, very quickly just because of the disaster. One of the things I've learned uh, about a disaster is it exposes the vulnerabilities in your community. 
one of our big vulnerabilities was affordable housing and it just exposed it right out there to everybody. Uh, and so that's where now I'm in the role of planning how do we utilize some of the other federal funding to address this as much as we can. Well, yeah, Patrick, I mean, so we're talking there mainly about um, Western Western Kentucky. And I know you, you're in Columbus, but you've done research all over. Um, and I wonder if you can speak to that as well with disasters or, or unforeseen um, you know, challenges in communities and how they've impacted or how they impact the affordable housing situation. Let me let me talk about this. I mean, I could give examples because we've we've gone into like um, Joplin, Missouri, uh, a couple years after they had their horrific tornado in 2011. We went into the uh, Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans um, four or five years uh, after the uh, the hurricane had hit, Katrina had hit, and um, so you would think uh, communities have recovered a lot. And so I, I will tip my cap to Brent and Bowling Green because. Again, maybe the, the size of your community makes a difference, Brent. And so maybe uh, you have the capacity or just the passion to address these, these housing issues. But I'll tell you, when we looked at the Lower Ninth Ward, and this would have been four or five years after Katrina hit, the state brought us, state finance agency brought us in. And I, in my head, as I was approaching the area, I thought, okay, it's four or five years after the area was impacted. I'm going to see a lot of investment. You're going to see re revitalization. It was heartbreaking because you. I would drove through and you'd see 10 houses on one side of the street, 10 on the other. All of them were boarded up with maybe exception of one, you know, where it was it was uh, repaired or somebody was living in it. And then you might see one uh, uh, contractor's van outside another house, but that was it. And so the, the scale of the damage and then the effort that followed was heartbreaking because you just saw that there was no real change. And so there was, and this was a vulnerable neighborhood anyway, uh, economically. And so that was one of the reasons they had us come in to kind of assess where do they stand and where are they heading and what could they do? And so again, it's, it's good to hear what Brent has done in Bowling Green uh, to address, you know, their communities in a rapid way. And it's a great example of what government needs to kind of adapt itself to the moment. We can't go through these normal protocols. We can't go through these normal procedures. It's going to drag out the recovery in terms of these, these homes uh, much longer than it needs to be. And we've got people in dire situations. So that could be a good model to at least follow in, in Bowling Green to see how you know, a community can respond, can adapt to their uh, circumstances. One of the other things I want to just jump back to, because, you know, we, we Brett was talking about their, their housing situation in Bowling Green. We've done um, uh, housing needs assessments in Owensboro. We have done, uh, we're doing one in Rowan County, uh, Rowan County, up in the northeast part of the state, uh, in, in neighboring uh, to uh, Warren County, where Brent is. Uh, we did Barron County's housing needs assessment, and this is all in the past year. The, 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 it's almost like it's the, a universal problem, right? Affordability is at the top of the charts that everybody talks about. One that people don't really talk about a lot, but I think they all know it out there, and that's availability of housing. There's just nothing available. And yes, the problem is more pronounced for lower income households. When we survey markets, not just in Kentucky, but anywhere in the United States, it's almost a universal truth that any subsidized project is usually full or 99.8% occupied. But even the, the tax credit product, um, in most cases, it's really rare for us to survey a, a whole housing stock of tax credit product in a, in a community and come back with an occupancy level of less than 98%. And in many of those cases, uh, they're full. 
Uh, I think in the case of Bowling Green, when we were there four years ago, in fact, we were just there this summer to do some work for uh, a developer. We surveyed, this is Bowling Green, Brent, so you get some updated information here. So this was July of 2022. You had 15 tax credit projects, 496 units. You had three available. So you had a 99.4% occupancy rate. And most of the properties had wait lists, long wait lists. And so the pent-up demand is there uh, for affordable housing, not just in Bowling Green, but you can almost point to any community across Kentucky and say, look, we've got a, we've got a serious housing shortage. And you know, today's discussion really doesn't focus on for sale housing, but you can do the same exercise as we do on a lot of these housing needs assessments where we look at for sale product and what's available. And in most cases, uh, it's really rare to find anything under $200,000 that's available to purchase. And we're reaching a point, particularly you know, if you go anywhere in the Southeast, so take you know, Kentucky and head to North Carolina, Virginia and go South, it is really rare to find anything under $300,000 that's available anymore. And just think of what your income needs to be. You got you got to make close to about eighty thousand, ninety thousand as a household to afford a three hundred thousand dollar home. Well, there's a lot of folks out there that you know are candidates to be first time home buyers, but they are not going to find available inventory uh, that is affordable to them. So this is not just a rental problem. This is a for sale housing stock issue. It's not just Kentucky. It's it's the country. I'll talk about how we saw shift after past study. Um, several years ago, you know, and we had kind of worked into his studies and presentations too, uh, because I wanted him to be there to talk about it and people to ask questions and go back and forth. And uh, we were at the, I think the Builders Association passed that next morning, and, and you gave the same presentation that you'd given to our uh, board of commissioners. And you know, people said, "Okay, so what are we going to do?" I said, "Well, maybe we look at products." You know, maybe we look at, and, and this is market price, so this isn't really about all the affordability stuff. I said, maybe we look at products, maybe we look at densities, maybe we look at, you know, what flexibilities do we have at the local level? And, you know, and, and development takes a year. And so what we started to see and what Pat's study showed us was, well, I think 40% of the available for sale inventory at that time was over $330,000. Uh, and this was 2019, right? And uh, they said, you know, you know, your big demand is in this 175 to 215 range, you know, that starter home, but there was just nothing out there. Uh, so then all of a sudden, a couple of years later, we started seeing developments come online that were denser, smaller footprint, square footage was back then, because at some point, everything costs money in this process. So the, the developer, the builder has to find costs saving somewhere and so size and square footage is a big one and so we started seeing that i thought okay we started seeing new home construction pushing that 175 180 you know they had to build volume to make any money on it uh and then covid hit right after that and everything all those 175s went to 215 to 225 to 235 like that and i thought we were so close to having some of this inventory really come online and then it just all went haywire again. And I mean, now we can't get back there. Uh, I don't know that we can build new single-family detached construction really under 1,100 square feet. You just you run out enough places, enough square footage to put the bathroom in there. Uh, and so I don't know what that looks like moving forward for us uh, because we're going to be in the same boat as Pat's talking about where 
that starter entry home price is just going to be too elevated to get people in there to really start having that equity, uh, building equity uh, for the next home and the next home and the next home down the line. Just to give you kind of a, a similar situation that happened in Bowling Green is happening in other places, and that's Asheville, uh, North Carolina. And in Asheville, I did a study there in 2014, 2015. I did a presentation. I showed them the inventory of what was available at that time by different price points. And at that time, they had a pretty big inventory of homes priced under $200,000. Now, remember, that's 2015 at the latest. They brought me back in 2019. I did that exact same graph in this in my presentation. And that inventory of $200,000 or less was gone. It was There was virtually nothing left. And I said, look, I bet you if you bring me back again in three, four, five years, uh, and I did any product under $300,000, it's going to be gone. And oh boy, they could have brought me back in 24 months. I think that that case would be that the inventory has shrunk. And so again, that's another example of, you know, what was affordable just a few years ago. Brent hit it on the head, right? You, you could have done something in that two, up to 220 range in Bowling Green, and you would have solved a major housing gap. But now the construction costs are so high. We didn't do this in Bowling Green, but we've done it in other communities where we do a kind of a broad overview of development costs to say, what would it cost to build a home? What would it cost to build an apartment? And ultimately, what would it then require of the developer to charge for those houses when they sell them? They got to make a profit or same thing for apartments. They got to make some kind of profit. And in most markets in the Southeast United States, and I'll throw Kentucky into that, uh, you can't build a home. It would be difficult. Let me say this. It'd be difficult to build a home under $300,000 as a sales price. Same thing for rentals. It would be difficult in most Southeast markets to build a rental and charge less than $1,200 to make the project work from a financial viability standpoint. And so the developers are in a tough spot to try to do affordable housing. Um, and it's it's just uh, exacerbated here in the last two years in terms of just all the things that's driving up the cost. And so uh, when communities like Bowling Green have hope, like, okay, maybe we're onto something, you know, fast forward 12 to 18, 24 months later, and we're in a different place. So who knows where we're going to be, you know, in 2023, 2024. Um, but let's hope things settle down a little bit and let uh, folks kind of catch their breaths and, and be able to do some affordable housing. Yeah, Patrick, do you make recommendations when you're when you're in, in those communities for how to start addressing those those uh, housing gaps? We do. Um, it, and it depends on the community on what they're looking for. Um, some folks want really detailed uh, action plans. Others almost want like just tell us our problem and let us kind of figure out our pathway and and i get that because you know when we do our studies we don't know the political environment and politics do play a part of that we don't know the financial resources that communities have and so and in the end you know if if uh, if a community was going to uh, issue a bond and uh, use that to help fund affordable housing that's a big undertaking that is a big political football to move um, and so you have that challenge. It could be setting up a housing trust fund. It could be certain policies or incentives. Um, it could be bringing in uh, others, uh, nonprofit groups, foundations, uh, Habitat for Humanity. Um, it, you know, it could be, I'll give you another one um, and I'm maybe jumping ahead to something. I don't know if we were going to cover this, but uh, employers. That is one of the biggest changes I've seen. And Brent, I don't know if you've seen this in, in Bowling Green, but I will tell you this. One of the things we do in these housing needs assessments is where we survey employers. And we find out from them what does housing, what is housing doing to you, in terms of uh, uh, your business growth. And one of the things we get back, or one of the many things we get back, is we cannot attract employees. 
because we do not have housing for them, or at least housing that's affordable uh, to them. And so for the first time, really in these last two years, I've been doing this for 26 years. The last two years, I've seen this um, kind of change in terms of how employers look at housing. They used to not be on their radar, but now they're they're connecting the dots to understand, look, we we have to have a, a healthy housing market. We have to have an available inventory. We need to have affordable housing stock uh, so that we can accommodate our workforce. Both of those that are here and might have changes in their lives, getting married, having kids, those kind of things, accommodating our seniors as their needs change. Um, but also from economic growth standpoint, if we want to bring people in, if we want to grow, so both bringing employers in, but then the employees that would work in these jobs, if we don't have sufficient housing, we have a challenge. And so if there's a silver lining in maybe this post-COVID world in terms of some of these housing issues is employers get it. And I and I am seeing a shift in, in terms of their openness to being part of the solution, whether they are um, uh, in some cases just helping their employees with down payment assistance all the way to I have now met. I just talked to somebody actually in North Carolina at a, a housing forum I was at on Tuesday where a, uh, a yacht builder is now getting into home building because he realizes my company couldn't be viable in attracting its employees and retaining my workforce if housing doesn't get resolved. So guess what? I don't know anything about boat build or house building or home building, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to find a partner and I'm going to go down this road. And so that, that, that probably rarely happened in the past. And now I'm starting to hear that more and more often. I have shared your study with our chamber. Uh, more times in the last six months than I've ever talked about housing with them in 10 years. Now, I know our chamber well, worked with them on the economic development side, uh, all that. Uh, myself and our planning director went down and had a chat with them about housing. And I think they're getting that question, especially from the new projects that are coming online about, hey, because it comes from a workforce side. Is there housing to support a workforce or is there enough construction? Is there going to be a workforce? Is there enough people moving here that we can fill the 400 jobs, the 2,000 jobs, the 200 jobs, you know, to meet the demand that we're going to try to meet as part of our production, as part of our facility? Um, and so I've had that conversation more in the last really six months than I ever had before um, about it. And Ben, who you know, our, our planning director, uh, him and I have had this conversation with multiple groups so there's been more people wanting to talk about housing so we've kind of been on our local housing uh radio show or not no, not radio show we've kind of tour of groups that have the housing conversation here locally because more people are wanting to talk about it uh, because everybody saw it dynamically change so fast uh over the last couple of years that there were a lot of people from different organizations with different groups that had not just the affordable housing advocacy groups and those doing affordable housing, just people are like, how are people supposed to afford $1,200 a month rent? Because in their mind, they can't process, why would there ever be $1,200 a month rent unless it is so nice, so luxurious, so fancy that it's going to attract people who can afford $1,200 a month rent, uh, but not just your normal new construction apartment complex. And, and so I've, I've had this conversation locally many times, but only in the last few months of the changes. And that's been an interesting change. Uh, you and I have talked about that. Um, I've probably had more. It's interesting that, that those conversations have increased for you, and they're increasing for me. Um, I've probably had more inquiries in the past 12 months than at any any single year from economic development organizations. 
right? Not housing organizations, not city government, it's economic development organizations. And so they're calling and saying, look, we've got, um, you know, a possibility to uh, bring in all these businesses and maybe some of the companies have already announced they're coming. We don't have the housing for our workforce. And that, it's almost too late to make that call. I'm not discouraging anybody to make that call, but it really, you're, you're behind the eight ball at that point. And I talked to a representative uh, out of uh, Virginia, out of an economic development organization there this summer. And she said, you know, Patrick, I, I used to get calls all the time about, from businesses that want to relocate. And I get the questions about the school district. I'd get questions about taxes. I'd get uh, questions about uh, skilled workforce, those kind of things. And Brent probably gets those calls as well periodically. But what she explained to me was, and I've heard this repeatedly in the last several months, she said, housing is now the, if it's not the top thing I'm getting asked about, it's near the top. So they will ask about the schools, taxes, but they'll say, what's your housing stock look like? What Do you have available housing? Is it affordable to people that are gonna make the wages of these jobs I'm about to bring to your community? So for those that are you know, thinking about you know, housing solutions and economic development, just understand there is an absolute link between those two more now than maybe ever before. And so that's the good news. Again, employers are getting it. They want to be part of the solution. Economic development organizations, they've probably always suspected it, but now it's moved way up their, their list in terms of priorities. And that's why our phone's ringing as much as it is right now. There's a lot of communities out there really, really struggling with housing. Yeah, because it's a it's a giant talent attraction issue. Uh, you know, every community is trying to attract talent, uh, and talent can move around. Talent can go where you know quality of life is what they want. The the community has the amenities or the things that it's looking for, and you know, housing is a big part of that. That is typically the largest expense and largest purchase we make as as individuals is our housing expenses. And we want to know if we're going that we have options to go to. Uh, I've seen it on really the opposite side of this. You know, we're talking about this from a workforce standpoint. I've seen some of our smaller communities, kind of in our region, that have had success. Um, you know, attracting in new investment, new jobs, and things like that. You know, there's a lower cost of living and, and all that. But then the company was concerned because there was no housing available in those communities for its plant managers, its financial stuff, you know, it's, it's higher income. And then they're like, but there's nowhere for them to live. You don't have this type of housing for these people. And, uh, uh, and so luckily Bowling Green's actually fared pretty well because we had that market. Uh, so they might come in to uh, run a plant in a, in a neighboring community, uh, but then they're going to live here. Uh, and then travel over there for work because we've had that higher end housing you know, in, in our market. So it can be both sides of that coin. Uh, obviously, you know, the focus of this and the focus of what we do isn't executive housing. I do not work in executive housing. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, but uh, it's it's about, you know, there's a lot more forklift operators in that plant than there are plant managers. And so it's how do I deliver enough housing for all those people? I was in a position where I was trying to um, find an affordable rental where I wanted to be a first time home buyer. <clears throat> you know, go to local sources, whether that's your local housing authority or economic development, maybe even the Chamber of Commerce who puts you in contact with the right resources. But I think that's where people need to turn to the resources first to find out you know, what uh, assistance is out there, what are their options, um, who are those that might be able to advise and guide. And that's one of the things, you know, uh, that we put in our often put in our recommendations for uh, these broader housing needs assessments is, you know, build your resources because some communities just don't have a network in place. And whether it's to 
kind of move the needle on affordable housing issues and push for certain policies or things like that, but also resources for the residents of communities so they have a place to turn to, whether it's some kind of online you know, web tool or whether it's an organization that um, uh, provides some kind of housing guidance services and resources, but it, it turn to resources and hopefully the communities have them. And then that would be the advice to communities. If you don't have resources available to help not even the, the uh, consumers, the residents themselves, and potential home buyers and renters, but even for developers, right? They can make a call to Bowling Green and ask Brent, hey, do you have sites and can you help me? He's a great resource. A lot of communities do not have that, that simple one-stop place to get that conversation going, or they don't have the online tools to help a developer out. So I would, for the communities, my advice would be have, a, have some kind of resource center, have somebody that's there to um, help those that are trying to either build housing or find housing to live in. Yeah, you know, figure if I'm going back to, you know, trying to start, trying to find my housing path, you know, 20 years ago, uh, what, what, you know, I'm in this situation, uh, you know, Bowling Green is a community where we have some of those resources, um, but you don't, you can't just go see what's out there uh, because it's all bureaucratic. So there's always a form. There's always something you have to do. And so many times we see people go find the resource, but then they don't take the next step. They don't fill out the form. They don't turn it back in. There are people out here that want to help, that want to tell the success stories, that want people to succeed. They want to know that the work that they're doing impacted somebody's life. And they love to know that this is this person life that I impacted through this work. But that individual has to, you got to fill out the application. You got to go to the class. You got to show up. You got to go through this process. It's not just go find the resource. It's take it to that next step to complete and utilize that resource. And, and that's where I see people go, oh, well, it doesn't quite fit for what I'm looking for. It, it, it's, I, that doesn't work for my schedule. You know, these programs are designed with the hope of success. Sometimes the bureaucracy gets in the way of that, uh, and so. But you got to keep down that path. You got to stay persistent uh, to really take advantage of that. And so there, there is help out there, and there are people working in these organizations that want you to succeed. Uh, they want people. They, they, they wouldn't be there if they didn't want to help people. And, and that's what I see on a regular basis. But sometimes that path can be hard and frustrating and difficult to navigate. So. It can be done. Well, that's a wrap for bringing it home today. We truly hope you've enjoyed our discussion. If you'd like to find out more information about Kentucky Housing Corporation, please feel free to visit www.kyhousing.org. That's www.kyhousing.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast and blog, you can also visit www.bringingithomeky.com. That's www.bringingithomeky.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can also email us at communications at kyhousing.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you bring it home with us again.